This is a Federal News Network podcast. Looking at Capitol Hill this week, you can almost see two Congresses, the one working through ordinary items like confirmation hearings and the one deeply stalemated over the big questions like how much money to commit to anything. With a view of the week ahead, Bloomberg Government Editorial Director Lauren Duggan. And Lauren, both houses are in, so this is one of those old-fashioned Washington weeks. Absolutely. You've got both chambers in business and a lot happening in the committee side in both the House and the Senate as members get down to a number of items that they want to tackle as the year gets going here. I mean, we're we're in June, about almost five months into the Biden administration with a lot left to do before September 30th when the fiscal year ends and a number of key programs expire. Um, but there's still you know, things to do, like put people in places around the government where there's still some vacancies, a number of them, and um, also make sure that they're chipping away at other things that are on their agenda. So no shortage of things to work. And it looks like the Office of Personnel Management, one of the key positions, even though it's a small agency, that's going to get someone permanently in charge now. That's right. That's one of the nominations that Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has teed up for action this week, provided her nomination can get 50 supporters. They can overcome any attempt to filibuster that nomination and then get it to a confirmation vote that seems likely to happen. Um, So that could be confirmed by the end of the week and, um, you know, get down to the important work of of government and its workforce, especially as it tackles things like coming back to the office full time and, and, you know, filling up the offices that have been pretty empty for for several months or almost a year and a half now. And what else in the House? I guess the minority, uh, the majority whip, Steny Hoyer, has got a pretty big agenda he's mapped out. Yeah, he's laid out what looks to be a pretty busy June, um, starting this week with a bill around corporate disclosures with environmental, social and governance issues and political donations. Um, They're also going to take up a bill this week that would repeal the 2002 law going way back that had authorized the Iraq war. Um, This has been a priority for many Democrats to get that off the books because they don't like some of the other military activities that have been carried out under the umbrella of that resolution that was adopted back in 2002. And coming up later in the month, they're going to try and get rid of some more Trump administration uh, regulations using the Congressional Review Act that was popular in the Trump years to take on Obama rules. And Democrats in the House and Senate are using that now to take aim at some Trump rules. Um, And then later in the month will be the big marquee vote, I would say, in the House for June. And that's on infrastructure package that has started to come together. Now, this one might be a little more routine pieces of what would traditionally be a surface transportation bill. That's important because those programs do expire on September 30th. It may not be the grand sweeping American jobs plan style package that the president wants. Um, Pete DeFazio, who's the chairman of the House Transportation Committee, who got that approved last week, uh, really wants to focus on this and sees this as important, but he's not losing sight of that bigger infrastructure package that continues to be negotiated both inside Congress and with the administration. And the president's regular, so to speak, discretionary 2022 request, that's almost a back burner at this point. It is, but um, they've been chipping away at that, too, released in full on May 28th. Committees of both the House and the Senate on the authorizing side and the appropriation side have been bringing people up to Capitol Hill, asking about some of those priorities and trying to come to grips with what to do there because September 30th looms pretty quickly. There still isn't an agreement yet on how much to spend in total, which makes it hard to figure out how much to spend on each of the 12 spending bills and then how to spend on each program within those bills. So um, appropriators on both sides are anxious to get going on this. Um, Patrick Leahy has talked about wanting to have a discussion early 
about how much to spend in total to try to make that work easier. He's talked about maybe having markups in July on some of those appropriations bills. The House has also laid out a schedule similar to that, maybe even starting this month on those markups to start writing those bills. But there's a lot to do there um, before September 30th. And of course, that's when talk of a continuing resolution starts creeping in just because it'll be hard to process all that. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, editorial director of Bloomberg Government. And we talked about Senator Leahy. What else in the Senate? They've got their filibuster debate that they're talking about. And I mean, that that seems to be the uh, tougher body in terms of dealing with itself. Right. The debate about how to have debates is lingering over many issues. So this week, they are going to chip away at a few more nominations, somebody for the Federal Trade Commission, the OPM person that we mentioned. And then also there could be more nominations that pop up as they're approved by committee, whether that's um, Frank Kendall at the Air Force or some of the cybersecurity nominations that are getting a vote. I think Wednesday in committee will come out. And some of those could be done fairly quickly, even by voice vote or unanimous consent at the end of the day. But looming over everything in the Senate is what to do about some of these big ticket items that Democrats want to move um, and, and how to do it, because the, the rules currently allow a minority, 40 senators, um, I guess 41 senators, really, to block action on a bill because it takes 60 votes to cut off debate. I think the big showdown on that could come later this month with a bill on election procedures and other government issues called the For the People Act. It's something that many Democrats back, but not all of them. And that's key here because Joe Manchin has said that he doesn't intend to vote for the bill as it's currently written. And um, he's also been one reluctant to blow up the rules that um, allow filibusters or, or that allow a minority to extend debate endlessly. Um, so we will have to see if there's a resolution on that. I think we'll see a lot more talk on that because there is building pressure, including from activists around the country, to do something with that bill, to do something with the rules. Um, to allow that to go forward. Well, a lot on the plate. Lauren Duggan is editorial director of Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much for the outlook. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. 
So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment, Shane, and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive. Uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black. Literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? 
You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that that attribute, I think, is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic! And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give? to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. 
Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.